Chapter 30 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Doty. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 30. Cordelia Rebuilds Her House. Of course, as soon as her spirits began to lift themselves slowly out of their dazed stupor, Cordelia, being human, wished for vengeance, vindication. Oh, how she wished for vengeance and vindication! Perhaps she had been a fool. Undoubtedly she had been made one. But how she would love to strike back, and strike back, and strike back again at Gladys and Franklin, make known to everybody their treachery and perfidy. And how she yearned to make the world admit that almost all these terrible things that believed against her were only lies, the lies of these two. But even as this desire flamed up from the ruins of her pride, there rose with it, chilling it back into her pride's ashes, the conviction that if ever she were revenged and vindicated, revenge and vindication must come from some other source than herself. The very desire was no more than an impotent gesture of the old Cordelia Marlowe, that old, all-confident Cordelia Marlowe, who could do anything and everything, was now quite dead. She was without strength, without power of any kind. And so, although the desire for revenge and vindication lived in her, flamed into white heat at times, hope of these was entirely gone. The financial adjustment, the domestic rearrangement, of the household were of necessity radical and rapid. Within two weeks they were out of the Park Avenue apartment. It was a highly desirable apartment, and Mitchell, by his same unabashable methods of bargaining, had sublet it for the balance of the period of the Marlowe lease for a thousand a year advance upon the Marlowe rental, and this windfall was of course a help. The furniture had been sold to the last kitchen chair. Mitchell compelled decent prices, and the proceeds were turned over to the creditors, Mitchell demanding and getting receipts in full. Mrs. Marlowe had decided to retire to some small, obscure city where living expenses were comparatively low. Upon her income, she could no longer afford New York, and her pride could not countenance the probability of her meeting, in her now reduced circumstances, the friends and satellites of her reigning days. Cordelia was remaining in New York City to try to make her own way, and Lily elected to stay with Cordelia. Lily, after much discussion, was given by her mother an allowance of $15 a week. She would not take more. Cordelia refused to accept anything whatever. In such manner, and upon such terms, the Marlowe family parted and began its effort to start life afresh. There was one financial matter which troubled Cordelia more than all others. This was the humiliating $20,000 she had received. Franklin's or Gladys's money, the money they were suing to recover. How she did itch to return that money, if only she could, and feel herself cleansed of at least this much of her soilment. Now don't you worry about that money, Mitchell ordered her. Gladys and Franklin are tickled to death with having spent it. Neither of them ever before got so much for his or her money in his or her life. They certainly got a bargain. And here's another way of looking at the whole situation. By rights, if he only had the evidence, you should be suing each of them for about ten million for defamation of character. 
At the very least, they owe you that much, so stop the worry. Mitchell made another point. Now, about that suit, don't you worry there either. That suit is just a grandstand play on their part, just a play for publicity. I'll hire a $10 lawyer to handle your end of it. They'll string it along, getting it postponed for this and that for just so long as they feel it helps them. Then they'll drop it as quietly as they can. They'll never press that suit to a trial. They won't dare to. You just wait and see. And just as Mitchell prophesied, to let this history run ahead of itself a bit, just so did the matter of the suit come to pass. One bit of financial drifted was saved out of the wreckage of the Marlowe fortune. This was Cordelia's dazzling racing roadster. It was saved, of course, by Mitchell. He blandly admitted in private that the method of the car salvation was perhaps not irreproachably honest, but then who was he to worry about such a highly technical and academic and non-terrestrial detail as mere honesty? Within an hour from the time he set Cordelia down at her home on the day of the disaster, he had the car out of the garage where Cordelia kept it and in another garage whose address was known to none of the parties concerned in the Marlowe assets save only himself. Thereafter, in the course of the squabble with the creditors, he claimed that Cordelia, several days prior to the bankruptcy, had turned the car over to him in settlement of a claim, and in holding on to his own in the matter of keeping this car, Mitchell proved the most relentless and bloodthirsty creditor of the whole crew of creditors. Not all the creditors, combined in a united assault upon him, could have torn from him so much as the car's spare wire wheel. That beautiful, aristocratic, foreign-born car had been Cordelia's pet since she was 18. Five years. It had to be sold, of course. But no one could kill that pet except herself. Besides, Mitchell had been doing enough for the family. So Mitchell left the disposal of the pet to Cordelia. Cordelia's education and the facts of life now began to proceed rapidly. She learned about life, real life, from that car. She offered that beautiful and rare roadster to one second-hand dealer, then to another. She was astounded, outraged, personally insulted at the price she was offered. She decided the low price was due to the fact that she was offering an open car for sale at the beginning of winter. She would get ever so much better terms if by some means she could only hold the car until spring. She took counsel from the poor man's and poor woman's ever-ready advisor, the wanted section of a newspaper. Here she sought the columns that are crowded with three- and four-line offers to buy and sell automobiles, and tucked away here she found several nuggets of purest hope. Several philanthropists, giving only their telephone numbers, offered to loan the full sale value upon cars, strictest confidence being observed. Cordelia telephoned one of these good Samaritans, and half an hour later she eagerly entered his office. Sure enough, he did offer to loan her upon the car, almost as much as the dealers had offered her. This was splendid. She gratefully told him he needn't be delicate on her account in the matter of her pawning her automobile, for now that her social position was gone, she had no reasons for asking that strictest confidence be observed. She then discovered that the reasons for the delicacy in observing strictest confidence, a confidence so strict that it amounted to an unprovable relationship, were entirely his reasons. His reasons had to do with interest rates. In New York State, usury is illegal, and penalties are attached to its practice. Usurers, who are plentiful enough despite the law, 
are therefore rather diffident gentlemen, tongue-tied in the presence of a third person, and disinclined to put very many words on paper. This particular good Samaritan asked, for a four-month loan, interest at the rate of one hundred percent, the interest to be deducted in advance from the sum he offered to loan. Cordelia left him, returned to the first dealer she had seen, and sold the car at the price which had been first offered her. People who sold second-hand cars in the closing weeks of 1921, when the financial slump was at its lowest, and cars were being sold for songs and very poor songs at that, have already guessed to the very dollar what Cordelia was paid. For that high-born, dashing racer which had originally cost thousands and thousands, and on which she had recently spent 1500 for internal repairs and beauty treatment, she got an even $500. But then, of course, the car was five years old. This $500 became the basis of Cordelia's new fortunes. At this time, she and Lily had just moved into a two-room kitchenette apartment in Harlem. They were doing their own cooking, housework, washing, clumsily, of course, for they knew as much of such things as Columbus knew of America prior to 1492. And Lily was freshly entered in public high school. Cordelia now turned to the great problem of ways and means. Henceforth, she had her own way to make. She might have asked aid of Jackie Thorndyke, and Jackie would probably have loaned her money, for the restless Jackie had a generous enough heart. And Eileen Harkness would probably have done the same, and perhaps others. All of them very privately, of course. Naturally, it would be out of the question for them to champion her openly. Such a course would be too great a social risk. But Cordelia decided not to ask them. She would have a try at things entirely on her own. And so, it may here be recorded that Jackie Thorndyke and Eileen Harkness and the others never again had any place in Cordelia's life, except as memories or as names seen in newspapers. Cordelia had made up her mind how she was going to earn her living, and now that she, or rather Mitchell, had cleared away the impending mess of affairs, she started straight out to achieve her goal. She was going to be a motion picture actress. Picture actresses made an awful lot of money, everybody said and Kyle Brandon had always spoken in easy, offhand, impressive figures. Besides, he had said she would be a surefire hit in pictures, a star under his handling. Of course, she wouldn't expect stardom for a while, but it would be nice to have one of those nice secondary roles and get one of those nice secondary salaries. She was dressed in her best, the best then remaining to her, and she looked her best when she entered Kyle Brandon's outer office. She had to wait quite a while after she gave her name. Quite a long while. But when, after an hour of waiting, she was told Mr. Brandon would see her, she went in with her brightest smile. He seemed strangely altered from his former self-possession, the unhesitating positiveness of his every act. He shuffled at his desk, seemed uncertain in all his movements when he received her. But she refused to let that dim her smile. I've come to hold you to your promise, Mr. Brandon, she said cheerily. I've decided to go into motion pictures. He looked most uncomfortable. The easy flow of ample gestured language seemed entirely lost. His speech came haltingly. It was made up of isolated orphan phrases, sentences that weakly began nowhere and breathed their last before they got anywhere. 
these tattered fragments, broken odds and ends, so incongruous and alien in that fluent mouth, touched with vague staccato quality upon such subjects as a general financial depression, you know. Worst year picture business ever had, you know. Small exhibitors closing their houses, this censorship that makes you afraid to make anything. We're up against it. What can we do? Our Eastern studios closed down. Only two companies working in Hollywood. Most actors and directors are idle, glad to work at a fifth of what we used to pay. And so on and on, the great man wandered through the byways and labyrinths of his inarticulation. But while his visible and audible lips staggered drunkenly, his invisible lips were the open floodgates for a rushing, roaring torrent of words, all curses and all directed at her. Why the hell had he let his damned good nature trick him into letting her in to see him? Why the hell had she come anyhow? He was a most unhappy man, Kyle Brandon, and in his behavior in the scene of Cordelia, he should be judged as such. The ingredients of Kyle Brandon were the ingredients of the best of the so-called motion picture magnets, a large dash of fake buncombe, a gift for splendid promises, a touch of very real genius. Do not doubt the genius. The whole diluted and well shaken up with coloring matter and a large quantity of water, like bootlegger's whiskey. But instead of water and coloring matter, it would be more fair to Kyle Brandon to state that these last ingredients were just plain ordinary human nature. And human nature, yours or mine or a motion picture magnet's, grows embarrassed and indignant and feels itself imposed upon when a former prosperous friend drops in and asks for the fulfillment of a promise after that friend has turned into a famous failure. Brandon could hint at hard times and attendant disastrous conditions, but there was one condition which disturbed him more than any of these as far as Cordelia was concerned, and of this he dared not hint to her at all. Some two months earlier, there had been a Labor Day party in a San Francisco hotel, with whiskey and gin and a phonograph and pajamas. And in consequence, a widely advertised film comedian was then in jail, charged with the murder of a film actress, and a large part of the country was calling upon the films in an awful voice. The general effect of Billy Sunday talking vigorously into a vast amplifier, either to seek the paths of repentance and righteousness or else go out of business. At the time of Cordelia's visit to Brandon, the picture producers of the country were panic-stricken with morality. Cotton Mather was never more righteously upright. Indeed, there never has been, never will be, never can be, a higher peak of moral righteousness than the righteousness of all the picture producers in all their public utterances, all their public attitudes, during the fall and winter of 1921. They were the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the Blue Laws, rarefied, volatilized into their original cosmic vapor, and then recondensed and the resultant pure distillate of virtue recomposed into human beings who strode about their offices as though they were God's latest priests in God's newest and chastest temples. And to think of this Cordelia Marlowe coming to him and asking to be put into pictures at such an hour of exalted, perfervid purity. Cordelia Marlowe, about whom all the papers of the country were printing stories that recently exposed famous society blackmailer. Why, why, put her in pictures, put her in pictures. Kyle Brandon almost dissolved quite away in the mental perspiration of the very thought. 
When Cordelia finally got the solid residuum, the slight precipitate of his murky speech, she perceived that the golden opportunity for stardom had in some manner dwindled to this. A chance to be used as an extra woman. The pay, 5 to $15 a day, according to importance of character. And according to clothes required, she to furnish her own wardrobe. Perhaps two days work a week. Perhaps not. Certainly no more. She to pay all traveling expenses to Los Angeles and all living expenses. And no part of this to be considered as a guarantee on his part or as a promise. This was the day Cordelia decided she was not going to be a motion picture actress. Cordelia learned about life, real life, from motion pictures. She had been fully aware that Brandon had been embarrassed to see her, and this made her angry all during the interview. In this she was, in a degree, unjust to Brandon. There was some substance in a business sense to those unspoken objections which shivered through his mind. And then, as a matter of fact, Cordelia really could not act. She could walk gracefully about. She could take an easy, graceful pose, as when Brandon had directed her at the pageant. But as for any natural, spontaneous ability as an actress, why, Cordelia could no more act than, than, well, than the average motion picture star. After giving up motion pictures, her mind turned to something which she knew she really could do. She was an excellent all-around athlete, the star of her years in Harcourt Hall, and although she had been gay in the years since then, she had never dissipated and was now in fine trim. The returned Lily had told her that the position of physical instructor at Harcourt Hall had just become vacant. Cordelia determined to apply for it. She was competent as a teacher, she believed. In her school days, the girls had taken to her naturally as a leader, she would make an ideal coach. She was the right person. Swallowing her pride and what was left of it, and putting on the pleasant smile she had worn into Brandon's office, Cordelia went out to her dear old school home and asked to see Miss Harcourt. Always before, when she had dropped in for a visit, Miss Harcourt had instantly hurried out with a proud, ingratiating smile. Now Miss Harcourt's secretary asked her kindly to state her business. This Cordelia did, and the secretary vanished softly into the inner shrine. Presently she reappeared and reported to Cordelia that Miss Harcourt could not spare the time to see her and did not care to consider her for the vacant position. And so Cordelia also learned about life, real life, from Miss Harcourt. One of the things which she was beginning to learn about life was this. When you were down and out, about the only old friend of your splendid days whose friendship you can still count upon is yourself. And she was learning this other thing, that it's mighty fine if this particular friend is equipped to help you by being equipped to do something for which people will pay money. Cordelia might have tried for a place as physical instructor at some other school, but she judged her chances slight with the school year underway in all positions doubtless filled. And besides, she had neither practical experience nor recommendations. And so, at last, Cordelia's mind turned toward that very occupation which occurred to her in the beginning of this history, when she called up Jerry Plimpton and asked him how much stenographers were paid. She would become a stenographer. Here her determination settled, and here it remained. She entered a business college and took up stenography and typewriting. And in such manner, at last Cordelia Marlowe, 
Cordelia the Magnificent, 23 going on 24, started out upon the humble end of that long road which stretches between trained competency and true magnificence. She was starting out to try to learn to be fundamental to all else, just an ordinary, average, self-supporting person. She found it hard, tremendously hard. What her studies most required was application, and in all her life, she had never applied herself to anything except pleasure. But she was determined, for there were only a few dollars from the car between her and bitter necessity. She had to learn to be competent and learn in a few months, or else die. And so, during that fall and winter, Cordelia drove herself relentlessly all day at school, and then again at night, when her share of the housework was done, she drove herself at the keys of her rented typewriter until exhaustion and sleep would let her drive no more. If the old friends of the years of her magnificence could have seen Cordelia during the days and nights of this winter, they would have been bewildered. They simply could not have understood. Cordelia Marlowe doing such things, living in such a way, why, it just couldn't be so. Some might have pitied her, but most of them would have been very glad that they no longer had to know her. As for Lily, that lazy, irreverent child lived the life of these days with a tireless zest that this were the great adventure for which she had always hungered. Lily decided to add to her original qualification for being a stenographer, her ability to chew gum, by learning to typewrite. And when she was not busy at other work, and when Cordelia was not using it, she was hammering away at the typewriter, endeavoring under Cordelia's instruction to master the touch system. The two of them did not remain alone, nor in that first tiny flat for more than a month. Escorted by Mitchell, Esther came to call, and after a visit or two, and debates about the basis on which expenses should be divided, a larger flat was taken. And after that, the household was composed of Cordelia, Lily, Esther, and Francois, with Mitchell calling almost every evening. Esther's finances were a bit easier now than when she had first left Rolling Meadows, for Mitchell was turning over to her the income from a small sum which he, as the best friend of Francois's father, had managed to recover from the father's muddled estate. He told Esther this fib, as he confided to Cordelia, for the reason that if Esther knew the truth, that the money he was turning over to her was really the income from the sums he had extracted from Gladys, he knew she would regard the money as Gladys's and would refuse to take it. From this time on, Francois, who seemed to have a true collector's mania for mothers, again had three mothers as in the days of Rolling Meadows, and of the three, Lily took her adopted motherhood with the most airs of importance. Hers was a mothership that fairly strutted. Pleas and commands from her mother and her other elders had had no effect whatsoever in restraining Lily's profanity. But somehow this son of hers, with no plea having been made to her, almost instantly brought about what those in authority had vainly striven for. Her swear words seemed suddenly to drop out of her vocabulary. As she explained to Mitchell, You see these days we women have got to be mighty careful how we bring our men folks up. With hard work and relentless driving, winter moved slowly on towards spring. These months, almost with her being unconscious of the accretion, details were added to Cordelia's estimate of Mitchell. His picture slowly filled out to a full-length living portrait. His business, she learned, was Eastern representative of a Cleveland firm manufacturing automobile parts, a young and small firm as yet. 
but with all of youth's vigorous determination and ambition. Its head was the friend to whom Mitchell had turned over his bonds as security, and whose temporary disaster had forced Mitchell to return to domestic service. The same friend who, in the letter Cordelia had long ago discovered in Mitchell's pocket, had thanked Mitchell for the remittances he had been sending. It was with this concern that Francois's tiny fortune was invested. The firm had a medium-priced car of its own, existing for the most part only in drawings, which it would launch upon the market as soon as the firm was better organized and as soon as it could draw to itself the necessary capital. The great selling point, and the great service point of this new car, Mitchell explained, was that, through the company's patents, it had all the stability and roadability of the heaviest and most expensive cars together with the gasoline economy and low upkeep of the average car of lower cost. There was a tremendous field for this type of car, Mitchell declared. Tremendous. She also became aware that, though he was up at the little apartment for an hour or two almost every evening, as a rule, very early in the evening, so that he could have one of his great talks with Francois before the boy's bedtime, Mitchell was a prodigious worker. He worked long hours, and his mind never slowed down. As he explained to Cordelia, You see, I lost almost five years out of my working life through the war, and I've got to work myself double shift to make those five years up. He was certainly working double shift, and undoubtedly he would make up those years. Also, she learned that the facetious, fantastic, jesting quality which had so irritated her at first, because she had set it down as an assumed mannerism, was a true element of the man. He was just that way in all things. In him was a lot of the mischievous boy, the Peter Pan who would never grow up. Perhaps it was this leftover boyishness which gave him his amazing zest. She knew that he worked with a jesting smile. He had made love to her with a jesting smile. And she imagined that he had gone into battle with that same smile of high banter. That smile, she now realized, signified no lack of seriousness, of high purposes, of grim determination. It was merely the way in which this particular man faced the great problems, the great dangers, the great desires of his life. And back of that fantastic jesting smile, she now knew, was an infinite tenderness. Also, she realized that he had this tenderness reverse, a grim, patient, relentless, almost maniacal vindictiveness toward any injustice, particularly an injustice or insult directed at his friends. This last, she sensed, in its most marked degree, in his unchanging attitude toward Gladys. Toward Gladys, she judged, he would stop at nothing. In fact, he had said as much. Imperceptibly, the conviction grew upon her that Mitchell, if the chances of life did not turn all against him, might someday be recognized as a very remarkable man, perhaps even a very great man. For the able man who smiles at everything and keeps right on going, he is a man that nothing less than fortune's malignant and unchanging ill will can ever stop. These ideas concerning Mitchell were not so much definite conclusions, the result of conscious and careful observation as a final sum of almost unconscious impressions which filtered into her as the busy weeks and months moved slowly by. From the newspapers during that winter and early spring, Cordelia occasionally got bits of gossip about persons who had formerly been important in her life. Jerry Plimpton, as she had known, 
had started for Japan the day after he broke his engagement to her. In February, the papers reported him back in New York. Of the others, Gladys was one of whom the papers told her the most. Socially, that winter was the biggest and best Gladys had ever had, for this was the first active social season since she was 19. She was 19 when Francois was born, when her spirits had not been repressed and her activities restrained by her ever-present fear of exposure. Now that old dread was gone, Esther had removed it. Her spirits swept her where they wished. She entertained frequently and lavishly, having dug up from some obscure spot as a substitute for her stepsister, an elderly lady of dignified aspect who responded promptly and obligingly when addressed by Gladys as Aunt Gertrude. So the lady took the role of Gladys' aunt without a day's rehearsal and with no previous knowledge of Gladys, and who gave the element of propriety to the social activities of Gladys's spinster household. And when Gladys's was not entertaining, she was being entertained. She was immensely popular, immensely successful. If by misadventure these pages have given any impression that Gladys was publicly an unpleasant character, that impression must here be emphatically corrected. Gladys was never unpleasant except to dependents or inferiors or enemies, or when she lost her temper. And when Gladys lost her temper, if the person offended was one she thought of importance, she apologized so promptly and profusely that she begot a kindly feeling toward herself as one of those hot-headed, warm-hearted persons who flare up and then flare swiftly down in misery and self-reproach. Not an ounce of real ill nature in her whole makeup, you know. No one knew more of the art of being consciously pleasant than Gladys. In her methods, she was similar to those thrifty farmers who keep the worst of their produce for home consumption and send their best to market. One of our greatest comic actors, an incurable addict to matrimony, he is still alive, God save his bones, thus summed up the wife of one of his middle marriages, widely known as a delightful actress. She's great on the stage, but hell in a flat. That was Gladys. On her own stage, she was truly great. Also, Cordelia heard of Jackie Thorndyke and of Eileen Harkness, of these and other of her friends, from the newspapers, and from Mitchell, who now heard far more of the gossip about town than did she. Jackie and Murray Thorndike had finally come to an open smash-up. Murray had gone to Paris, where his temperamental dancer was said to be, and Jackie was in California, starting her divorce proceedings. As for the Harknesses, it now appeared that both of them for a long time had consciously been going at a much faster pace than an honest usage of the resources would have permitted. Peter Harkness's brokerage firm was one of the many financial houses that were accused early in 1922 of bucket shop practices. It had collapsed, and Peter had suddenly vanished on the magic carpet which seems ever at the disposal of all absconders, leaving behind him debts, wailing claimants, and a penniless wife. Eileen, however, appeared not to be prostrated by her misfortune. Report had it that she was living upon the benevolence of and finding great solace in the company of a rich gentleman who looked young and handsome, if one did not inspect his makeup too closely, despite his fifty-five years. At any rate, she dined openly with him almost nightly at the smarter restaurants and went with him to the first nights of all the new plays. As she lay awake, 
Cordelia often thought of the four of them, Gladys, Jackie, Eileen, herself. And included with the four, she sometimes thought of other girls much like themselves, her mates at Harcourt Hall, her friends in society. But mostly, her thoughts dwelt upon the four. And these thoughts began to form the weak bones of a philosophy that thus far was amorphous. All four of them had been envied girls, superficially at least, all clever, brilliant girls. They had had everything. They had been heiresses of leisure, with nothing to do but enjoy themselves. And starting with everything, what a mess they had made of their lives, all of them. Gladys, now the most successful of the lot, at bottom a sneaking, scheming, crawling creature, afraid of the one real thing in her life, her own child. The restless Jackie, Cordelia no longer placed the major blame on Murray, always so eager to be on the go that she had not cared to make a real home. And now apparently about to develop into that type of woman whose life is just a series of rapid pilgrimage from the present husband to the next, and for whom life's only variety is this matrimonial change. And pretty dashing Eileen, now apparently on her way to becoming a woman of the town of the smarter class. And herself. Publicly, at least, she had become the most inglorious cropper of them all. Yes, what a mess they had made of life, all of them. And as a bit of philosophy began to come into her life, Cordelia's views toward herself and her career began slowly to alter. She had been unjustly used, had been tricked, lied about. But then, after all, she herself was most to blame for all the evil that had overtaken her. Her confidence had been based on nothing real. Her sense of mastery over herself and over others had no solid powers behind it. She had been just pretense, self-deception, an utter amateur at life, and yet so confident. She had sought to build a great mansion on a foundation of sand, and someone had come along and their touch had helped topple it over. If she had conceived the right sort of house and had built her house properly, all the strength of these people could not have moved so much as one of its smallest timbers. And while she did not hate and despise Franklin the less, she blamed herself the more for their relationship. She now saw that she had taken the wrong turn, because it was the easier turn at the very start. She now saw that she, and girls like her, had been the destined prey, the especially trained prey, for the men who had written her those odious letters or for the Franklins of the world. Her self-confidence, her tremendous belief in herself, had made her Franklin's easy dupe. But for that conceit, that sense of her high value and great power, she would not have taken as a matter of course that she, an untrained person, could honestly earn $30,000 a year and could honestly do the things Franklin had asked her to do. Yes, it had not been so much Franklin as her own great conceit that had made a fool of her. The same conceit that was making, in various ways, fools out of other girls of her kind. It was about this time in Cordelia's vague, philosophizing, calendar time was in March, that there began to grow up in Cordelia, its first sprouts were tingling and awing thrills, the strange, unreal sense that, perhaps after all, 
her misfortune was in time to prove her salvation. She had been lucky. That was it. She was lucky. She hadn't deserved luck. She had no merit. But she was lucky. Every day this sense grew stronger, more tingling, with more of lift to it. Through sheer blind luck, she might eventually escape into something fundamentally better, finer, more worthwhile than the most glorious of her former dreams. It was when Cordelia began to think like this that her old friends, could they have known her thoughts, would have understood her least of all. She finished her business course in March. She had been working under stenography and typewriting from 12 to 15 hours every day, including Sundays. All those extra hours of self-imposed drill now counted. She was a fair stenographer for one without experience, and she had the makings of an exceptional typist for the swiftness and exactness of muscle and nerve which had made her an unusual athlete were assets of equal value upon the typewriter. The day she had graduated, Mitchell proposed to her again. Mitchell had gradually come to be an accepted part of her life. She felt more of easy comfort, of at-homeness, with him than with any other man she had known. But she didn't know whether she could ever love anybody. The nerve centers of romance were still dazed from what had happened to her. And perhaps there was permanent paralysis. These things she told Mitchell. And she added one other thing. I'm not any too proud of what I used to be. But everybody believes I was a blackmailer. I was not. At least not consciously. But it wouldn't be fair to any man for me to come to him as his wife bringing along my terrible reputation as a blackmailer. And I'm not going to. If we could ever clear their reputation, what would you say? You're suggesting the remote and improbable, if not the impossible. But if we ever could, and ever do, may I ask you again? I suppose you may. Then she smiled at him. I'm only saying you may ask so, merely because I know I couldn't stop you anyhow. I'm taking that as a promise. Please remember it. Now, I've got another proposal. If you won't marry me, will you work for me? This proposal she accepted. But not until after a long wrangle about salary. He offered to start her at $20 a week. She knew that this was more than a beginner ordinarily could get and refused it. They finally compromised on 15 And at $15 a week... Cordelia the Magnificent began her career as a wage earner. What Cordelia needed to improve her was practice and experience, and Mitchell saw that she got both. Besides which, she kept hammering at the typewriter at home at nights to develop her speed. During the weeks that followed, she made rapid progress. She gained that self-confidence which is based upon trained ability to do a thing, which is a different sort from her more glorious confidence, which was based on nothing at all. She knew she was better, so when on the first day of May, that was her birthday, and she was 24, Mitchell again offered her $20 a week. This time, she accepted it. Her first $20 pay envelope brought Cordelia one of the very greatest moments of her career. She was making $20 a week, and she could live on $20 a week. For the first time in all her life, Cordelia Marlowe was living within her income. A few days later on Fifth Avenue, she saw Gladys walking toward her with Jerry Plimpton. 
This was the first time she had seen either since that century-distant day in Gladys's library. Jerry held his face straight ahead, though she knew that he had seen her. But Gladys gave her a look of hard, exultant triumph, not otherwise recognizing her, slipped a hand through Jerry's arm, laughingly said something close against his ear, and thus, arm in arm, they swept by her. She knew from Gladys's manner what had happened, and was therefore not surprised the following morning when she read in the announcement of their engagement. End of chapter 30